I used to suffer from tremendous anxiety when I was younger. I felt as though I was crazy. You know, this was before the internet, so I had zero information to help me. Then I decided to become a therapist in my mid-20s. And in graduate school, in my, in my mid-20s, I learned about anxiety. And almost immediately, my anxiety went away, for the most part. My anxiety was cured because I knew what anxiety was. So today, for those of you out there who are suffering from anxiety, I want to present information to you so that you can beat your anxiety. And I'll also provide ways, specifically, things you can do to beat anxiety. I also want everyone listening out there to learn more about anxiety so they won't stigmatize anxiety because people with anxiety often feel stigmatized and ashamed, which is, you know, truly a tragedy. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I am your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I am a therapist and I'm also chair of the Couple and Family Therapy Program, Couple and Family Therapy Program at Antioch University, Seattle. The reason why I'm talking about this today is because I received an email from patron Zoe. She actually sent me an email a few months back, but she also sent me an email recently as well, asking, let's see what she said here. Patron Zoe said, uh, I listen to your podcast on YouTube. I have some suggestions for a topic, uh, hypochondria or agoraphobia panic disorder. She says, this is my favorite podcast, and she spells favorite in the with the u so either she's canadian or british or something but anyway listener zoe this or a patron zoe this podcast is for you since you've been asking for this for a while and you're also a patron so patron zoe wanted me to talk about agoraphobia and maybe i'll do another episode on hypochondria as well but but really i'm gonna i'm gonna talk specifically about agoraphobia for a little bit but really when i get into talking about ways to beat anxiety. It applies to everything. It, it, it helps with health anxiety or hypochondriasis. It helps with agoraphobia. It helps with panic. All, all the, the ways that I'm going to present later are really ways to, to help with any anxiety. But I'm going to talk about agoraphobia here at, uh, at the beginning just because patron Zoe wants to hear more about that. Maybe she already knows about this, but for those of you that don't know about this sort of thing, basically it's a, you know, the Agora is an open space. You know, I was just in Greece recently and there's the Roman Agora, you know, the Roman society had this practice where they would create an open space for people to hang out, I think. But anyway, so Agora comes from Latin for open space and phobia is fear. So fear of open spaces and people often will lay people will often be so they're, you know, so wait a second, people who are agoraphobic are afraid of meadows, you know, like completely open spaces. But, but really what it, uh, it means typically is fear of leaving your house. So it's not fear of open spaces specifically. It's fear of leaving your the safety of your home. Also, a little fun fact for you is that Freud might have suffered from it himself, and it might have been one of the main factors in him pursuing psychiatry and eventually inventing psychoanalysis. So let's go into the DSM-5 definition of, or the DSM-5 criteria for agoraphobia. Uh, first off, it should be noted that in previous editions of the DSM, agoraphobia was often matched up with panic, but now they're completely separate disorders. Agoraphobia is characterized by fear or anxiety about, about actual or anticipated exposure to public spaces. So let's kind of break that down. So people are, are either afraid or they get stressed out about actually being in public spaces or about anticipating having to eventually go to an open space. So someone who suffers from anxiety, uh, suffers from agoraphobia, if someone invites them to uh, go to a football game or something, well, that, that invitation, you know, say it's, you know, very important, they're invited by their boss or some, something like that, and they feel like they have to go. Well, they're going to have a lot of anxiety leading up to that moment because they're, they're, they're having anticipatory anxiety. Or they might, having gone to the football game, actually be experiencing stress at, at the game. Okay, so moving on. The symptoms of fear or anxiety must occur most of the time in at least two of the following five situations. So the DSM actually lists these five situations, and 
in order to qualify for the diagnosis of agoraphobia, you have to you have to experience fear most of the time in two in at least two of the following situations. One, using public transportation. Two, being in open spaces. Three, being in enclosed spaces. Four, standing in line or being in a crowd. And five, being outside of the home alone. So again, uh, it's a little strange to me that the DSM breaks it out into these five different situations because the public transportation thing is a little weird because a lot of people don't use public transportation, so I don't even know why that's in there. But anyway, uh, and plus, wouldn't that just be subsumed in being in a crowd or being in open spaces or something? But anyway, so, so you know, say you're, you're afraid of both being outside of the home by yourself and being in a crowd. Well, if you have, you know, fear most of the time in those two situations, then that qualifies you for this criterion. So these situations are feared and avoided because the person who suffers from agoraphobia believes that escape might be difficult or help might not be available if the person panics. They essentially believe that if they get to that space, they won't be able to, to escape the, the place. You know, some people have fear of sitting in the middle of the movie theater row. You know, some people need to sit on the aisle seat or in an airplane. They have to sit in the aisle seat. This is very common, actually. And it's not that they fear sitting in the middle of an of the movie theater. It's that they fear that they won't be able to escape very easily. And so, you know, it's a claustrophobia feeling. Uh, so, you know, it's like with elevators. Some people are afraid of elevators. I actually was afraid of elevators for a while. It wasn't that I was afraid of elevators. It was, a, I was afraid that I might panic because I might not be able to escape. And for those of you that suffer from anxiety, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And for those of you that have never suffered from anxiety, you're thinking, what the hell? That sounds ridiculous. And, um, I, uh, like I said earlier, I suffered from anxiety when I was 20 ish. And it, it came on from a particular stressful event. And after that stressful event, I uh, started having panic attacks and I started experiencing a lot of anxiety and I thought I was going to go crazy. And then the fear kind of morphed into another fear where I was afraid of sitting in the backseat of cars, you know, without that weren't four door, you know, I was in two door cars. I was afraid of sitting in the backseat because I felt like I'd be trapped. Um, there were, let's see, what else was I afraid of? I, I started getting afraid of germs and I started being afraid of people, you know, poisoning me and this sort of thing. And even though I knew it was extremely unlikely that any bad thing would happen, I would, my body just had this reaction, you know, it was just this bodily terror that would take over that I had no control over. And like I said, as I, at the time, I knew nothing about anxiety and literally believed I was going crazy. And, and I thought that if I wasn't careful, that my brain would fall apart somehow. And again, pre-internet, pre-graduate pre school, I, that's what it felt like. It felt like I was going crazy. It felt like I was going to die. I thought I was going to die a lot of time as well. Okay, so getting back to the agoraphobia DSM-5 uh, criteria, the situations are avoided because the person who suffers from agoraphobia, agoraphobia believes that escape might be difficult or help might not be available if the person panics. So some people worry that they're going to throw up if they, you know, if they go to a, a movie, they they're worried they're going to throw up and and that and you know, for people who don't have anxiety, you're thinking, well, who cares if you throw up? But there there's something that happens in people who have these sorts of fears where it becomes extremely irrational and extremely embedded in their in their brains, so to speak. Uh, you know, they, they're sitting at home. They're like, okay, well I could go to the store, but what if I have an urge to throw up? Like, you know, it has a lot to do with humiliation. You know, we evolved as very social creatures and we, we are very dependent on approval from other people. And so sometimes those wires can get crossed and we can believe like, well, if I throw up, I'm going to be humiliated and I will be ostracized from the tribe and I will, you know, die on the African savanna. So other things that people will worry about are they might pee themselves or they might shit their pants. They're worried about these sorts of things. There are a lot of people worry that they might pass out, that they might faint. People worry that they might make a scene. 
you know, they, if they're in the middle of the theater and, and, or they're, uh, they're worried that their anxiety will spike and they'll start screaming or something, or they'll make a fool of themselves. And again, for those that don't have anxiety, you'll say, well, who cares if you freak out? What's the big deal? But to people that have anxiety, it's, this is a crippling feeling that they have. Um, an elderly person might fear falling down, for instance. They might have a fear of, of leaving the house and falling down in isolation and no one can come help. And so that might be another reason why they don't leave their house. Um, so to qualify for the diagnose, diagnosis of agoraphobia, the individual must actively make attempts to avoid the situations that they fear. So it's not just that they are afraid of them, but they actually have to uh, make active attempts to avoid the thing that they fear. And it should be noted that the diagnosis of agoraphobia is not, and really for any anxiety disorder, is not applied to people who have reasonable fears, like being afraid of a dangerous neighborhood. So if you live in a really extremely dangerous neighborhood and you're afraid to leave your house, well, that's reasonable, so you wouldn't qualify for the diagnosis of agoraphobia. Also, the diagnosis is not applied to people who are consistent with their culture. For example, just off the top of my head, I, I can imagine an Orthodox Muslim woman living in a you know predominantly Muslim culture who never leaves her home because she's afraid of what it's like out there, and that's because it's it's culturally normal to to be that way. Uh, it's it's expected that you're not going to leave your home. I don't know that much about the Muslim culture, so forgive me if I'm completely talking out of my ass. But but anyway, it should be noted that culture needs to be considered before applying the diagnosis of agoraphobia. That's the main point. Um, the symptoms of fear and anxiety must last for at least six months. So if you're experiencing agoraphobic symptoms, but you've only been experiencing, experiencing them for a few months, then according to the DSM, you don't qualify. Having said that, if I, as a clinician, were to come across someone that met the criteria quite well, and they only reported that it had been going on for three months, I would all, in all likelihood, I would apply the diagnosis of agoraphobia. Uh, I, I find this, this one criteria to be a little silly. I mean, it's, it's like, okay, so the day before six months, you don't have agoraphobia, and the day after six months, you do. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, I mean, I understand uh, the spirit behind this criterion in that if you're only suffering from symptoms for a couple of weeks, then maybe it's some temporary thing or maybe it's related to something else and it's not a persistent issue. But, you know, a few months, it seems like that is enough time. But often, by the time people come to my office suffering from anxiety, it's well beyond six months anyway, so it's not like this is a big deal. But anyway, the symptoms, as always in the DSM, must cause clinically significant distress or impairment. So that's a, an important thing. Just, you know, if, if you just have mild anxiety about leaving your home, but, but you're fine leaving your home and it doesn't restrict you from your job or restrict you from social activities or ruin your life in any way, then the diagnosis of agoraphobia is not applied to you. So, so it must have clinically significant distress or impairment. But there's a lot of judgment in that criterion because, you know, what constitutes clinically significant? It's really up to the clinician to decide. Also, the symptoms cannot be better explained by another mental condition or medical condition. Things like post-traumatic stress disorder or obsessive compulsive disorder or separation, or separation anxiety or generalized anxiety or some other medical condition that's causing temporary anxiety. It should be noted that a lot of times people who suffer from agoraphobia, a, a better diagnosis to apply for that, to apply to them is PTSD, post-traumatic stress, stress disorder. An element of post-traumatic stress disorder might be that the person has tremendous fear about leaving their home. So, if you just look at that one symptom cluster, then you're going to say, oh, they're agoraphobic. But when you actually assess the whole individual, you realize that they have the full spectrum of trauma stress. And so that's just something to take note of. So basically, in a nutshell, a common result of someone who suffers from agoraphobia is someone who never leaves their house and, and the, the person is dependent on other people for assistance. About 2% of the people suffer from agoraphobia around the world. And it seems to not differ among ethnicities. Females are twice as likely to have it than men. But remember that plenty of men have it. 
the incident seems the incidence seems to peak in late adolescence or early adulthood. That's when the most people have an onset in late teens, early adulthood. So it usually, you know, happens between 18, 25, that kind of time. But but it can certainly have an onset at, at any point in your life. It's pretty rare in children and it's it's fairly rare in in people over 65, although there are certainly people over 65 that suffer from it. It is often accompanied by panic disorder, so it's comorbid, as they say. So people often will find that they qualify for both the diagnosis of agoraphobia and panic disorder. And sometimes panic disorder will actually cause the agoraphobia. So if you suffer from panic, you know, frequent panic attacks, one of the ways that people will try to cope with panic attacks is by never leaving their home because when they don't leave their home, they don't have panic attacks. Now, this is when we come down to like, okay, well, when, you, when you're actually talking to real people, sometimes it's hard to know which diagnosis or if both diagnoses are, are applied, you know. Because like I said, a lot of people who suffer from panic tend to want to stay home because their panic is reduced because of that. So should you just give panic disorder or should you give agoraphobia? Or both. So it, again, it really just depends on the clinician. And it doesn't really matter what diagnosis you provide on a clinical level because the treatment is basically the same. It's usually much more important when we're talking about research and, and this sort of stuff. But when it comes to clinicians or yourself, if you yourself have anxiety, it doesn't really matter what, what label you put to it. You know the symptoms and you know what it's like. And, and you know, it doesn't really matter what the, what the label is. It should be noted that agoraphobia, as with all anxiety disorders, are often persistent and chronic and long-term. So what are the causes of agoraphobia and other types of anxiety? Well, agoraphobia runs in families. So if one of your parents have it or one of your grandparents, then you have a much greater chance of having it. Uh, It's also true with other anxiety disorders. Traumatic or difficult or stressful events in childhood are associated with all forms of anxiety, including agoraphobia. And also recent stressful events will also cause agoraphobia and other forms of anxiety. Things like the you know loss, just a loss, or a death of, of someone close to you. A divorce of your parents or a divorce for yourself. Moving to another community. Have, having a serious illness of some sort being in an accident or being assaulted, these kinds of things. These kinds of things tend to, at the very least, create acute stress, you know, right after the event. But for some people, this can precipitate a long-term chronic uh, suffering from agoraphobia or some other anxiety. Also, a typical story is that what will happen is someone will have some kind of stressful event, like I said, like a accident or being assaulted or or losing someone or having someone die or or even just witnessing some horrible thing. So usually people will will have that kind of stressful event and then they'll go home and they'll start living their lives normally and then they leave the house and they have a spike in anxiety and then they real and then they run back home and they realize oh you know something's happened to me at my brain and now i you know whenever i leave the house i start freaking out and what happens is it, you know just thinking about leaving the house makes people afraid because they're worried that they're going to have anxiety there there's such a thing about having anxiety about anxiety a lot of people who suffer from anxiety actually worry about having anxiety, if that makes sense. Um, and, and so people will do a lot of things to avoid even having anxiety in the first place. And they'll, they'll get, again, they'll get worried about even having the anxiety. Um, so although I typically rail against evolutionary psychology and the way that it's reported in the media, it seems extremely reasonable to believe that we probably evolved a healthy fear of the unknown. You know, it makes sense that really for most animal species that they should fear the unknown. In, in other words, when we were on the African savanna during the Pleistocene, that for those people or even those apes that we evolved from, for those individuals that 
just kind of randomly wandered, you know, the the area. Um, it seems like they would have survived less often than people who tended to prefer to go back to home base. It, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, just think for yourself. You probably feel more comfortable in in your home than you do walking down a busy street. And that is because we evolved a psychological mechanism to induce fear in us a little bit, at the very least, when we're not at home. And so, uh, so evolutionary psychology can certainly help us understand agoraphobia. We also obviously evolved a robust fear, a robust psychological mechanism that keeps us from danger and death by inducing fear in us. You know, we when you see a, a lion and it's about to eat you, your blood, your body is flooded with stress hormones and and a lot of fear brain response uh, mechanisms kick in, and that's because we evolved to have those. And so, it, it's important to to know that as clinicians and as people suffering from anxiety, that your brain evolved to feel fear and that it's normal. And your brain evolved to prefer home. You know, it's, it's normal. So it's just important to, to note that to yourself. To some people, that's quite a revelation to understand that their agoraphobia or their anxiety is a, is a normal part of your biology, that your body evolved to be that way. Also, so again, looking at the causes, we're talking about genetic causes, we're talking about stressful events, we're talking about evolutionary psychology. And I think another, um, another thing to uh, note is that childhood difficulties like uh, being neglected, another cause to agoraphobia and other forms of anxiety is being emotionally neglected as children. So when you, if you grew up in a family where you were left alone or even abandoned in some way, or even if you grew up in a family where you were loved a lot, but maybe there were too many children, or maybe your parents were stressed out or they were depressed and just didn't have the energy to give you the emotional nurturance that you needed. Uh, well, for these people, they often grow up with anxiety. And for those people who experienced you know, actual trauma and horribleness, when I present this to them, they say, oh yeah, well, yeah, my parents both divorced. I mean, my parents divorced and then they, my dad moved across the country and my mom was really stressed out and worked all the time and she started dating and she stopped paying attention to me. And so, yeah, I can absolutely identify that I was emotionally neglected. But there's a second class of people that when I present this to them, they're like, oh no, my childhood was fine. And by all means, their childhood might have been fine. But what I find is that when I investigate when I investigate anxious people that say that their childhood was fine, is I will find that they will eventually tell me that indeed their their family was such that although loving and although they always knew that their family loved them and their parents loved them and their parents never divorced or anything, they were kind of left to their own devices. They were raised in a very independent way. They were raised in a way that uh, the parents probably thought, okay, I want to make my kids independent. I want to make them think for themselves and figure out their problems for themselves. And certainly that kind of credo, as far as parenting goes, is a good one, particularly today because we have the helicopter parent problem today. But but it, that can be taken a little too far to the point, especially and too early. You know, it's okay to say, I'm going to let my 10-year-old figure it out for himself. But if he's three, it's a little different, right? And so what I find is that people who are anxious tend to come from either families where they can easily identify emotional neglect, or they come from families where the emotional neglect was subtle. And I even hesitate to say emotional neglect. I would say just being raised in an overly independent way or something. Uh, I recently had a client that totally fit that bill where he came from an extremely loving, stable, good family, but he was left to his own devices a little too much and too early in his life. And he, as a result, uh, I surmise, suffers uh, from tremendous anxiety. 
and uh, chronic anxiety. And so, uh, so it just, it seems consistent with when I treat people with anxiety. All right, so let's get into the 12 ways to overcome anxiety. The first thing is to normalize it. Something like 25% of people around the world will eventually qualify for an anxiety disorder at some point in their life. It's extremely common to suffer from anxiety. Now, it's extremely shameful in our society. There's a lot of stigma around it, and so no one talks about it. But when you actually start asking around you will find that a lot of people suffer from anxiety. It's, it's very common. And it makes sense because we, again, evolved to fear death and you know danger. And it makes sense that if biology is going to err on one side, it's probably going to err on the side of creating anxious people as opposed to creating a bunch of people that aren't afraid of anything, right? <laughs> It's, you know, a little bit of fear is healthy and it keeps you alive and helps you to, to survive. The downside is, is it, you know, creates people who are suffering emotionally all the time. But, but if you think about it, you're, to procreate doesn't necessarily depend on you being fearless, right? Okay, so number one, normalize it in your mind. Make sure you establish that it's normal and there's nothing to be ashamed of. Because in order for you to move forward, you have to establish that first, I think. Uh, the second thing you can do is to get support. We are social animals, and we depend on other people, and we thrive within supportive relationships. Do not do this by yourself. Get a therapist. Get a family member. Get, get on a forum online. Get, a, you know, get some friends. Tell everyone. You know, There's nothing wrong with saying to everyone, look, I just recently realized after listening to the podcast Psychology in Seattle, in which I just recently became a patron of on Patreon.com, that I have agoraphobia. And if you don't like it, well, then you can just fuck right off because he said on the podcast that it's completely normal and we evolved to be this way. So don't judge me because if you do, I'm going to punch you in the face. I'm going to punch you in the face if, if you make me feel ashamed. You just go ahead and tell him that. Now, it's a veiled threat. You don't want to actually punch those people in the face. I, I cannot endorse that. Now, if after that they point and laugh at you, you know, if you're going to punch them in the face, I'm not going to say that that was wrong, but I'm not going to be held liable. You can't pin that on me because, you know, this is just a podcast. It's not like I'm telling you what to do. So just let's just make that be known. So get support. Normalize and get support. The third thing is assess your automatic thoughts. This is when we get into cognitive therapy. You, you might even want to log your automatic thoughts. So in other words, whatever sort of anxiety you suffer from, but let's choose agoraphobia. And let's say you get invited to something, you know, something involving something that will freak you out. Well, start writing down exactly what's going through your mind. They might not be exact sentences but, that are going through your mind, but try to put it in sentences like, if I go, I'm going to have a panic attack. If I go, something bad is going to happen. Um, if I go, everyone will realize that I'm a freak or something. You know, just, just write it out. Because sometimes when we write it out, it gives us power over them because we actually look at it and can evaluate the sentence. If, if the thought is just rattling around in our head without ever getting uh, expressed or externalized, then it might have a lot more power. And so we want to we log that and really become self-aware as to, as to what are the tapes that are playing in our mind. So normalize, support, get support, assess your automatic thoughts. Number four, assess your bodily reactions. You, again, you can log this as well. So someone invites you to something or you just have some sort of trigger to your anxiety, well, write down what your body is doing or just take note of it. You know, take note of, oh, okay, my, my hands are sweaty. My heart is pounding. I'm feeling tightness in my chest. I'm sweating. I've, I'm feeling a little confused. I'm feeling lightheaded. I'm feeling uncomfortable. I'm, I'm fidgety. You know, write all this down because our bodies are extremely good communicators to us, shall, I, shall we say. When we become aware of our body, we become much more aware of our emotions, because emotions are bodily experiences. And so you want to assess your bodily reaction. So you're just trying to get a, a lay of the land in terms of your body and your thoughts. 
The fifth thing is to reduce catastrophizing, as we call it. You want to assess the evidence of your fears. For instance, one of the things that I thought was going to happen to me, as I said earlier, is I thought I was going to die. I thought I was going to have a heart attack. And I thought I was going to go crazy. The main thing is I thought I was going to go crazy. I thought my brain was going to break. Well, after learning that that just is not possible for your brain to fall apart under anxiety, when I would feel anxious, I would tell myself that I wasn't going to go crazy, that the worst thing that could happen is that I will just feel anxious, which is not that big of a deal. Because that's the whole thing about anxiety. It's, it's not usually people are actually worried about what's actually going to happen. They're worried about things that are very unlikely to happen. You know, people who get on airplanes and are terrified of airplanes. It's, you know, they're, they're not afraid of airplanes. They're afraid of crashing and dying in an airplane. And the uh, likelihood of that happening is extremely low. The likelihood of going crazy under anxiety attack is, is basically zero. And so you want to challenge those things. You want to evaluate, really, again, you might just have to write it out and really challenge what, what is it exactly I'm afraid of? What, what are, what's my reasonable worst case scenario? This is something I do with clients all the time. I say, well, what's the, what's the reasonable worst case scenario? And for some people, just that question alone will alleviate their anxiety because they'll say like, because a lot of times anxiety just sort of festers in this unknown amorphous blob in your brain. And then when you actually start to write it out, you're like, oh, wait a second. So I'm basically worried about potentially making a fool out of myself in a movie theater. And I don't really care about that. I don't care about making a fool out of myself in front of a bunch of strangers. I mean, who cares about that? So, so sometimes uh, it really helps to evaluate what catastrophes you're imagining and to combat them through evidence and, and, and that kind of stuff. And for agoraphobia, uh, a big one to fight against is to say, I don't care what other people think of me. I mean, the sooner you can uh, attempt to reduce how much you care about what other people think of you, the sooner you're going to get over your anxiety. Uh, but that doesn't apply to everyone. Okay, so normalize, get support, assess your automatic thoughts, assess your automatic bodily reactions, reduce catastrophizing. Number six, do some helpful self-talk. So I've already kind of gotten into this a little bit in terms of the catastrophizing bit, but to be more specific in terms of other kinds of things you can do regarding self-talk is a, a wonderful thing that I've used and, and found very useful to other people who have anxiety is to say to yourself, it'll pass. The anxiety is like a cloud. It, it, it rolls in through the wind with the wind. The wind pushes the cloud over your head and the wind continues to push the cloud away. So this is a powerful idea because when anxiety begins, the fear is that it'll, it'll never end or it'll just continue to go up and up and up and up and up and your brain will explode. I mean, this is literally what people believe and literally what I believed when I was suffering from anxiety. But a powerful thing that helped me was to know really deep down that the anxiety will pass. The anxiety is coming. I can feel, you know, we're at step one. I'll go through the five steps of anxiety and then it'll end and I'll move on with my day. This is a powerful thing because it's not that you're not going to have anxiety, but you're not going to fight it and you're, and you're not worried about it. You're not worried about the, the anxiety. You're just like, okay, here comes the anxiety. Okay, it's, I'm going to be uncomfortable for about five minutes, but then it'll go away. It's a powerful thing to say to yourself uh, all the time. The trick is, is you have to say this to yourself when you're not anxious. If you only address your anxiety when you're anxious, you will fail. You have to address your anxiety when you're calm because you have to create these routines in your brain, in your automatic thinking that will help combat the anxiety when the anxiety comes on. So you have to tell yourself when you're calm, okay, remember the next time you have anxiety, remember it'll pass. It's just a cloud that comes over my head. It's not, not a big deal, that kind of stuff. Also, another helpful self-talk thing to say is that it's just a bodily reaction and it's nothing to be afraid of. This is a powerful thing for me as well. Because a lot of times for people that suffer from agoraphobia or really any anxiety, panic attack, 
is that something will happen in their body and they interpret it as something bad. You know, we've all had different things happen to us, like your heart will skip a beat or you'll get a headache or you'll feel a pain in your arm. You know, that's, a, that's one thing that sometimes people will, will fear because of heart attacks. Or, I don't know, they'll, they'll just feel a little funky. You know, I think we've all had those experiences where your, your brain just doesn't work quite, quite right or you just feel a little off for, you know, a minute or two. Well, for people that suffer from anxiety, when those random things happen, they interpret them as, oh my God, I'm about to have a panic attack or, oh my God, I'm about to freak out. If every time you heard a car, you in your mind thought that car was going to run you over, then every time you heard a car, you'd start freaking out, right? But the fact is, is that every time you hear a car, the chance of the car running you over is pretty slim. There's a chance because you might be in the middle of a road, but the chance of, you know, that you're in the spot where the car is going to run you over is slim. Well, it's the same with any kind of bodily reaction. If you have a pain in your arm, there's a chance you're having a, you're having a heart attack, but in all likelihood, it's just a random pain in your arm. And so you don't need to worry about it. And so that's just another thing to tell yourself is like, it's just a bodily reaction. It's, it's not a big deal. It's, it's probably nothing. Um, Another thing that I often will help people with, and this didn't help me in particular, but I find it helps a lot of people, is to assure yourself that you're safe and even just to assess whether or not you're safe or not. Because again, when you're anxious, you believe deep down that you're unsafe, that you're being threatened. But oftentimes you're not threatened actually at all. You're just at the grocery store or something. And so uh, a part of your brain believes you're in danger. And if you let that run the show, then you're going to have an anxiety attack. So you have to combat it by telling yourself, okay, I'm in the milk aisle of a grocery store. No one is here to hurt me. I am completely safe. Nothing is going to happen to me. If I need to, I can go to the bathroom. If I need to, I can go to my car. If I need to, I can call my friend. I'm safe. I'm okay. So telling yourself that you're safe might help a lot. All right. So one, normalize. Two, get support. Three, assess your automatic thoughts. Four, assess your bodily reactions. Five, reduce catastrophizing. Six, additional self-help kind of things. Self-talk. Sorry. Additional Number six, helpful self-talk. And number seven, exposure. This is very important in terms of uh, reducing your anxiety and it can uh, can eliminate it. I've talked about exposure in other in other podcast episodes, but just to remind people, uh, so you the main way to do exposure. There's two main ways to to do exposure. One is what they call imaginal or visualization, and the other one is behavioral or you know actually exposing yourself to the actual thing that that freaks you out. There's a third way that people are starting to use, which is virtual reality. But anyway, the the main premise here is that your body is afraid of something. And it's important to kind of say it that way. It's it's not me. It's not my psyche. My body is afraid of X. And the more you are exposed to X, the lower your anxiety will be. So for instance, take me for example. When I was afraid of airplanes, there was a there's the thing about anxiety is it often morphs in, from one thing to the next. And although for the majority of my life I've never been afraid of of airplanes, there was like a couple year span where I was terrified of airplanes. And and it wasn't even really fear of crashing, it was just like fear of fear, I think. And I would ext- I would experience extreme panic when I got on on an airplane. But what I did was I forced myself to get on the plane and I forced myself to experience the thing that I was afraid of. And over time, my brain realized that planes were okay. So the, f- the first moment I got on the plane, I was terrified. And I, I almost got off the plane. I almost like grabbed my bags, bags and just said, no, that's, that's it. I'm not going. But I forced myself to stay on it. And I was terrified. I was not doing well. But what it did is by the time we landed my brain had a, a lot of exposure to the airplane. And as a result, my brain started realizing that the plane was okay. And so, but what most people do naturally when they fear something is they avoid it completely. And so they don't give their brain a chance to get used to something. Now, before 
you get terrified out there that I'm suggesting that you should just face your fears. That, that's not how it works. You're supposed to face it in small amounts. The way I did it is actually not the general way that I do it with clients. But say, say you're, in, you're afraid of planes. Well, what I, I wouldn't say get on a plane. What I would say is imagine you're on a plane. And the whole idea is that to get your arousal or stress level or anxiety level up, so like on a scale from one to 10, through exposure, you get your anxiety level up to like a five and you hold it there. So I say, okay, imagine you're on a plane and there's, and they're like, okay, well, you know, okay, I'm doing that. I'm imagining I'm, I'm on a plane. How stressed are you? Oh, I'm a five. Okay, well, stick to that. Just keep imagining you're on a plane. And okay, where are you now? Well, I'm, I'm about a four. Okay, now I'm at a three. Okay, now I'm at a two. Now I'm at a one. Okay, good. You just keep doing that and you keep ramping up the exposure. So, you know, the next step might be to watch a movie about a plane crashing or something. <laughs> And, you know, previously that would have been intolerable, but because you did some exposure, that next step is more tolerable. And so, so they're watching the movie and they're at a five. And then by the end of the, by the time they watch it five times in a row, they don't experience any anxiety. And the whole idea is you're eventually working your way up to the big kahuna, which is actually just getting on a plane. And so exposure therapy is extremely effective in this way. The, our brains are highly adaptable. And so if you give your brain a chance to adapt slowly to what you are afraid of, then you will eventually not be afraid of it. The, another thing that people are afraid of sometimes is spiders. I just recently saw on Reddit that someone tried to uh, kill a spider with their a lighter while they were pumping gas. <laughs> so they, they saw a spider and they were so afraid of it and they didn't want to touch it or, you know, I don't know why you wouldn't just let the spider be, but anyway, they uh, tried to light the spider with a with a lighter and caught the gas on fire, and, and the car and the gas station blew up. Um, I mean, it didn't really blow up, but caused a, a very nasty gasoline fire. So there's a lot of people who are afraid of of spiders, and um, a there there are some forms of exposure therapy where they will literally take someone and throw a bucket of spiders on them. <laughs> This is um, a form of exposure therapy that has some evidence that it works. I mean, it's terrifying to the person, but but if but it can break you of your fear um, if you if you do it uh, some sometimes. But but I don't like to do that because who wants to sign it for something like that? So what I say is, you know, again, imagine a spider. Just imagine a spider in your mind. You know, that will f- produce anxiety for people who are deathly afraid of spiders. Okay, just imagine a spider. Okay, now look at a picture of a spider and really, you know, really stare at it. Okay, you know, and then once they, their body gets used to that, okay, let's watch some YouTube videos of some spiders. Okay, let's watch some YouTube videos of people holding spiders. Okay, let's watch some videos of a spider infestation. <laughs> okay, now let's uh, go to the zoo and look at a spider through, through the glass. And then eventually they'll be able to hold spiders. This sounds ridiculous to people, but it works. I'm telling you, exposure, do it. And there are a lot of, or there are some therapists that know how to do this well. Generally speaking, in my experience, therapists don't know how to do this, but some do. So if you seek a therapist for help with this, make sure they understand the basic tenets of exposure therapy and they have experience in it. Okay, so number eight is relaxation. So it's important to have a relaxation practice. Some people will use mindfulness or meditation or breath work, or you can do things to ground yourself. So things like my feet are on the ground, I'm okay, I'm breathing, I'm alive. There's certain grounding techniques. It's kind of complicated. And mindfulness is you know fairly complicated too, potentially. Uh, things like body awareness, relaxing your muscles, I can't tell you how many people find it novel when I tell them, clients, when I tell them, so when you're stressed out, how does, what's your body doing? And they'll say, I, I don't know. I say, well, are you stressed out right now? And they'll say, yes. And I'll say, well, are your shoulders tight? And they'll instantly say, yeah, they are tight. Well, what if you relax them? And then they relax them. Most people are, are terrible, woefully unaware of what their body is doing. And when you're anxious, it's very important to, to do things that uh, can relax you. Now, for a lot of people, they'll say like, well, that's not going to do shit because I'm freaking out here. Well, it might do shit because the part of your brain that is terrified is not responding necessarily to actual 
uh, stimulation from the outside world. It might be the part of your brain that is terrified, it responds to a lot of different inputs. And one of the inputs it responds to is what your body is doing. So say your, your fear mechanism is, is freaking out and it's continually checking different sectors of your experience to confirm or disconfirm uh, the need to be fear, fearful. Well, one of the things that it does is it says, well, what's my body doing? Well, it's like, okay, I'm freaking out. I'm freaking out. What's my body doing? Oh, my body's tense. Well, we must need, we must have a need to be fear, fearful. So we, you know, keep the fear going. But if that part of your brain is freaking out and it checks in with your body and it finds that you're breathing slowly, your muscles are relaxed, you're um, sitting comfortably, uh, you're, everything about you is relaxed. Well, then the, the fear mechanism says, huh, I must not be in need of being fearful. Let's shut the fear, the fear response down. So when you purposely relax your muscles, and particularly your shoulders and your back and you know everything, when, when you unclench your hands, when you breathe easy, when you relax the muscles in your face and your neck, when you do those things, it tells that part of your brain that everything's okay and you don't need to be anxious. And so these kinds of things absolutely work and I highly recommend them. <laughs> it sounded like I was selling you something or something anyway. Along those lines, again, just a reminder, become a patron of our podcast on patreon.com if I am going to sell you something. Go to, the, go to the computer. It actually means you have to go to the computer. Some people listen to the podcast on the computer. It's, it's like right there, man. Just go to patreon.com, psychology in Seattle, become a patron of the podcast. Let's take this podcast to the next level. Let's take this relationship to the next level, people. Also, uh, with relaxation... It's important to try to bring oxygen back to your brain. One of the things that happens physiologically when you're experiencing fear is your body does the number of things that it thinks it needs to do. You know, when we were experiencing a lion on the African savanna, it was important that we have the ability to run, but it's not important that we be able to think very well. <laughs> you know, we don't need to do math problems or complicated relationship kinds of things when a lion is about to kill us, you know, so the oxygen in our blood are, goes to muscles and, and I'm not a physician, so, you know, just go with me, <laughs> you know, it, the, the oxygen doesn't go to the thinking part of our brain. It goes to the, uh, to the parts of our body that needs to react physically to, to a threat. And so as a result, you become more confused as you become more anxious. And if you suffer from anxiety, you absolutely know this to be true. As you get anxious, your brain stops working as well. You might have a, you might have a hard time speaking or even like connecting things. And, and so when you're confused, it's also harder to address your anxiety. So it becomes a vicious cycle. So as you become anxious, you become more confused and you become less able to combat the anxiety. So it's important to get oxygen back to the thinking part of your brain. And you do this, again, by relaxing and by breathing easy and focusing on trying to relax things so that your brain will go back to normal. Okay, so number one, normalization. Two, support. Three, assess automatic thoughts. Four, assess your automatic bodily reactions. Five, reduce catastrophizing. Six, helpful self-talk. Seven, exposure. Eight, relaxation. And nine, assess your physical health. This is extremely important with anxiety and something that's often overlooked by therapists. You want to address any substance use because anxiety can be caused by substance use, uh, particularly you know amphetamines, cocaine, this kind of thing, but also alcohol. When you abuse alcohol, people can suffer from anxiety, uh, particularly the next day after they uh, drank. The next day they might have an, an increase in anxiety. So you want to assess that because it might be a simple fix in terms of just reducing your substance use. Another thing, obviously, is coffee. The more coffee, people drink a lot of coffee, particularly here in Seattle. There, it's, it's not uncommon to hear people say they drink five, six, seven cups of coffee a day, which is insane. <laughs> I mean, know that your body has become extremely tolerant of, of caffeine, and so you just keep upping the amount in order to get buzzed. But uh, So before long, you're going to be drinking just gallons and gallons of coffee. But, <laughs> but anyway... Um, if you drink coffee and you have anxiety, a very easy thing to do is get rid of the coffee. You don't need coffee. People say, oh, I can't function without my caffeine. Well, that's because you're addicted to caffeine. 
So if you stop drinking coffee, stop drinking. I mean, and I'm, this is me talking. I, I'm a, I drink coffee every day. I, I drink a cup or two in the morning every day. Today I haven't, but, but typically I do. Um, so I'm not saying coffee is evil, but if you're anxious and you're suffering from anxiety, a very easy thing to do to potentially cure yourself or at least reduce your symptoms is to cut the coffee, cut the, cut the caffeine. And there's a lot of caffeine in a lot of things. A lot of soda has caffeine in it chocolate, this kind of stuff. Also, you want to address your sleep. We've talked about this before in other podcasts. You want to make sure you get a good night's sleep every night. Anxiety can be exacerbated by lack of sleep. And you want to address your stress, just your overall stress. Okay, so that's your physical health. And 10, you want to get a therapist who understands. You want to get a therapist who understands anxiety and who really values you. It might sound strange that I have to, you know, qualify it as a therapist who understands anxiety, but there are plenty of therapists who know nothing about anxiety or almost who know very little about anxiety. They've they've either never had anxiety themselves or they just haven't they haven't come across it clinically, and so uh, that's one of the things that I think a lot of lay people might be shocked by is is how little some therapists know about your particular psychological issue. Um, there's a lot of therapists out there who become quite uh, specialized, shall we say, but end up taking clients uh, of any sort. And so, um, you know, plus therapist ability is also variable across different therapists. Some some therapists are great and some are not so great. Uh, okay, number 11 is to consider medication. Um, benzodiazepines are great. I am someone who hates taking medication. I'm one of those people who avoids aspirin and and these kinds of things. Um, So I will hold out to the last possible minute, as I did with benzodiazepines. Benzodiazepines are things like Xanax and Valium and this sort of thing. I cannot tell you how wonderful Xanax and Valium is, are. (laughs) I can't tell you. These are magical pills. And I can't tell you how many times I've been trying to convince people to take benzos. Um, let me just give you a story. Um, so I didn't used to be afraid of dentists growing up, but you know, as I said, my anxiety morphs. Well, eventually I became terrified of certain partic- certain dentist procedures. If it was just a cleaning, it was no big deal. But if it was any amount of drilling or any kind of surgery or something, it would freak me out. And I, I would almost faint. There, I had this one procedure where they had to flap my gum uh, open and then they had to get to the bone and they had to like scrape the bone down. It was pretty (laughs) bone was flying out of my face and, and I almost fainted like three or four times during the procedure and I had to stop it because I was going to pass out. Well, fast forward to just, I don't know, a year ago ish. So I hadn't taken any benzos up until like a year ago. And so prior to me starting to take occasional benzos, and I've only taken benzos, I don't know, three times or something, maybe twice since then. But, but prior to me taking benzos, I had this procedure where they, I had a baby tooth that was still, I'm 44, still, have a, still had a baby tooth. And it, it didn't have a root. It was just sitting on top of the gums and it was being kind of, uh, kind of held in by the teeth next to it. So it was barely hanging in there. And the dentist said that it had to go. And he said, all I'm, all I'm going to do is I'm going to grab it with pliers and pull it, up, pull it out. And it's probably not going to hurt at all. It's probably, you're probably not going to notice anything because it's just barely hanging there. So I go in for that procedure and I am completely freaking out. I'm, ha- I'm having a full-blown panic attack. And my dentist, bless his heart, he totally understands anxiety. And so we have long talks about <laughs> anxiety because he has anxiety about dentistry himself. He's a dentist who's terrified of going to the dentist. Again, just to tell you how common anxiety is. It's extremely common. So so, uh, so he pulls this, this tooth out. It, it takes literally three seconds to do. Um, my dentist is one block away. So I, I, you know, I can time. I, I went to the dentist. They pulled a tooth. I went back home. I think the whole, the whole thing took less than 10 minutes for me to do. <laughs> I'm not even joking. Like from the time I left my house and got back, I think I, w- I was back to my house within 10 minutes because it was, it might've even been five minutes. I don't know. I, I walked in, sat down, he pulled the tooth. I went back home anyway. So, um, but I was terrified. And even though in my mind, I'm like, it's not a big deal. Who cares? I mean, 
I, I, in my mind, I'm even like, well, worst case scenario, I get an infection and I lose my, my face. I'm, I'm, I don't even really care that much about my face. <laughs> like intellectually, it's like worst case scenario, who cares? But there's something deep down in me that's just terrified of, I don't know, things in my mouth, you know, that like metal things pulling on things. I don't know, something terrible about it. But anyway, so my doctor or my dentist, he says, okay, well, the next step is uh, we're going to have to put an implant in. And what that is going to entail is I'm going to have to cut your gums open and I'm going to use a series of of bigger drill bits and I'm going to have to drill down into your jaw. And then I'm going to have to put a uh, a little grommety sort of thing. I don't know what they call it, but it's basically like a molly. If you've ever used a, a molly in, a, in drywall, uh, I can't remember the hanger. I can't remember what they call it. But anyway, basically putting a titanium thing like embedded into my bone. But, you know, the terrifying part of it is, is that he's going to actually have a drill going in and out of my jaw and the procedure takes like an hour. It's not just, you know, zip, zip. It's like, you know, drill, 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 bigger drill, 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 drill. Okay. So he's looking at me and he, he knows I'm already terrified of it. And he's like, tell you what, I'll give you some value. I'll give you a prescription to Valium. Take one pill the night before, and I'm like, "Why take it the night before?" And he says, "Because you'll be freaking out the night before." And he's like, "Good," and I'm like, "Good point." It ended up I did not take it the night before because, again, I don't like taking pills. But anyway, the next day he said, "You know, take two just before and bring one just in case." So I did take. I think I took two uh, before the procedure. So so let's just rate on a scale from one to ten. So or zero to ten. Okay, zero to ten. Ten is like my brain explodes with anxiety. Well, with just pulling a, you know, innocent baby tooth that's barely hanging on there. I was probably at a seven. I was terrified. Okay. Imagine a drill going in and out of my head. That would have, that would have been a 10 in all likelihood, a nine or something. I took two Valium and the anxiety wasn't just reduced. I had zero anxiety during that procedure. It took an hour. He was drilling in and out of my head. I was on cloud nine. I, w- I felt less anxiety. I, if I could go negative anxiety, that's what anxiety I felt. Valium and Xanax are magical. And what people don't realize is that benzodiazepines have extremely mild side effect profiles. It's not like SSRIs like Prozac. You know, you hear in the news like, oh, you know, this kid took Prozac and killed himself, you know, Xanax and, and Valium and benzodiazepines are not in that class. They are, they're in a completely different set of class. It's, it's a CNS depressant. It's basically like drinking alcohol. Most people have drank alcohol and they're completely fine. That's a drug. Alcohol is a drug. Benzodiazepines are nearly the exact same mechanism. It basically just slows your brain down and you feel kind of drunk, but you don't feel drunk, drunk. You just feel super relaxed <laughs> and without any anxiety. And you might get a little uninhibited. Apparently, when I was at the dentist, I was a little little talky <laughs> with people. But you also get drowsy. So right after the procedure, I like took a nap for like three hours or something. But, you know, it's fine. Um, so benzodiazepines are magical. So I, I highly recommend that if you suffer from... Ex- oh, so, so let me sort of finish this story. So, so I go in. I have on the scale from zero to 10, I have a zero from the drilling. Well, from that point forward, because I had been exposed to a, you know, a, a severe dentistry procedure, my brain now equated dentistry with a lot less threat. And so subsequent visits to the dentist, I have not taken benzos and I've been fine because because benzos helped me in those, you know, it, it eliminated the anxiety in that moment. My brain is now equating those, those situations as not threatening. And so for some people, they're like, well, I'll become dependent. Well, it's possible absolutely to become dependent. That, that's one of the side effects or one of the, one of the negatives to benzos is they are habit forming. You can essentially become addicted. And there are people who take Xanax every day, which is a little uh, unrecommended, shall we say. Um, it should be used in acute anxiety occasionally, and it, is, it should also be used as a way of eliminating your, your anxiety altogether so you don't need Xanax at all, which is what happened to me. So let me give you something a little even broader is, uh, in addition to being terrified of dentists and certain drilling and this sort of thing, I was also terrified of needles. And so as a result, I would avoid getting vaccinated for the flu. You know, I'm... 
I would always hear from clinicians around me. It's like, you got to get, you got to get your flu vaccination because getting the flu sucks and people die from getting the flu, you know? And, uh, and you know, anyway, so I would always avoid that because I was like, well, I'd rather get the flu than, than have a a needle. (laughs) I mean, that's literally what I was like. Well, so ever since I had that, that procedure and took the two Valium and had no anxiety, well, it's, my my uh that's generalized that that experience was generalized to all medical procedures to the point where now i can get vaccinated for the flu and not have much anxiety at all i still have like a two or a three but it's totally tolerable so i highly recommend benzodiazepines and if you're out there and you have taken benzos you know how wonderful they are the other thing is is you need proper dosage because i took i don't know like 15 years ago I took Xanax, but I didn't take enough of it and it didn't really help me at all. So if you're out there and you're like, well, I took Xanax one time, it didn't really help. Well, it's probably because you didn't take enough. You know, if you have half a glass of beer, uh, that's one thing. But if you have a whole six pack, that's a whole other thing, right? <laughs> so uh, anyway, highly recommend benzos. The reason why I'm going on this benzo, this pro benzo kick is because I can't tell you how many times I've talked to people who are suffering from anxiety who were like me five years ago in that they say, I don't want to take medication or I've heard, you know, psychiatric medication is dangerous and this kind of thing. And certainly there are things you want to think about in terms of danger, but it's, there's so much benefit to them that uh, I, what I tell people is you're really, um, you know, passing, uh, you're, you're passing up an opportunity here to solve all your problems. And you can go to, you know, years and years of therapy and experience a 50% reduction in your anxiety, or you can take a benzo and it'll erase it immediately. (laughs) It's not true for everybody, but, and as I said, we need to, you know, be careful about not becoming addicted, but, but our society has so much stigma around psychotropics that I think it prevents people from something that can really help them. All right, so number 12, the 12th way to beat your anxiety. So if all those things don't work, if all the 11 things that I said don't work, then I recommend trying relational psychodynamic therapy. It's also called interpersonal or intersubjective or attachment-oriented therapies. Basically, for some people, their anxiety isn't related to the things that, are, that they're typically related to. Their anxiety might be related to the fact that they feel extremely insecure in terms of their relationships. And as a result, they have a lot of anxiety. And through internalizing a therapeutic, helpful, caring relationship with a therapist, you have a corrective experience in terms of it corrects for the neglect you experienced when you were younger or the abuse you experienced when you were younger. And so through this psychodynamic therapy, ongoing long-term relational therapy with a, with a caring therapist, your, your attachment needs become met. And inside of you, you begin to trust that you're lovable, that you're good enough, that you're secure, that you're not alone. And that through that resolution, you experience less anxiety. So I, I think that this is a wonderful form of, of therapy that I actually uh, provide people as well. But uh, it's so long-term, potentially, you know, we're talking like at least a year or so, that it's not, it shouldn't be the first thing you try. You should, you should try all the other things first, and if those things don't work, then you can try the relational therapy. So again, to review, you have one, normalize to reduce the shame and stigma. Get support from other people. We should not go alone. Number three, assess your automatic thoughts, the thoughts that automatically pop into your head when you have a trigger. Number four, assess your bodily reactions, your automatic bodily reactions. This is going to help you to become aware of your emotions. Number five, reduce catastrophizing. You want to address, you want to, you want to, you want to challenge your you want to challenge the worst case scenarios you have and you have going through your mind. Number six, you want to have helpful self-talk. It'll pass. Everything's going to be okay. It's just a bodily reaction. It's not a big deal. Number seven, you want to do some exposure. You want to have your body adapt to the stimulus. Number eight, you want to do relaxation, mindfulness, body, uh, you know, deep breathing, relaxing your muscles, this kind of thing. Number nine, you want to assess your physical health. Coffee, sleep, stress, substances. 
Number 10, you want to get a therapist who understands how to treat anxiety. Number 11, you want to, you want to think about benzos. <laughs> Number 12, if all, all else fails, you want to try psychodynamic relational therapy. The main thing I want to say here in conclusion is that you can absolutely cure yourself of anxiety. I've seen it happen time and again. It happened to me. My, I used to be crippled with anxiety, and it's morphed into different things over time. But, but the other thing that I want to say is, using myself as an example, is that you have to have a campaign against the anxiety. It's like with weight loss. You can't just say, okay, I'm going to try this one thing, and then it's going to work. It doesn't, or we don't work that way. You need to have a whole campaign against your anxiety. You have to, you have to be doing all 12 of these things, potentially, and you have to do them ongoing. And your anxiety might increase for a couple of years, and you gotta be more diligent about your about your regimen. And then it might go away, and then it might come back, and you might have a stressful event, and it'll come back. You know, so you have to have a campaign against your anxiety, and you have to be somewhat dedicated to it. You know, but know that it can be cured. Know that your symptoms can be re- at least reduced, if not completely eliminated. It, treatment has been found through empirical research. Uh, good treatment has been found to be extremely effective with anxiety. You know, if you had bipolar or uh, schizophrenia or even something like PTSD or even something like depression, it's it's a little harder. It's potentially difficult to uh, say that you're going to experience complete uh, remission of your symptoms. With anxiety, I've seen it time and again where people's anxiety are completely eliminated with proper treatment. So know that uh, you, can, you can get help and you can help yourself and you can have relief. And also know that knowledge is power when it comes to anxiety. The more you know about anxiety, the more power you have over it and the less symptoms you will experience. The, if you could read, you know, 10 books on anxiety, my guess is at the end of that period of time, you would be less anxious. Listening to this podcast might, might help as well. That's, that's my hope. All right. Again, go to patreon.com. We're in our day nine of our pledge drive. Go to patreon.com and become a patron of the podcast. If you appreciate this episode and you want me to do more of these kinds of things. Uh, all right. Well, that does it for another episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me. And please, 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 if you suffer from anxiety, uh, try to do these things because you deserve relief. And I hope this episode helped you, patron Zoe. Let me know what you thought of it if I addressed what you wanted me to talk about. (laughs) I'm guessing you're asking because you suffer from agoraphobia and anxiety. And I really, really hope that you can get the help that you need. And and let me know how you're doing because uh, I care. (laughs) 